I've always wanted to write a murder mystery. I've also always wanted to go to Africa. These two things are not related. Okay, this is my first entry. You know that my bread dough? Bread dough is also not related. I'm gonna bury it out back in the snow. <laughs> but I'll jam them all together. I make bread for the clients at this group home I work at. Over a decade ago at the same group home, I made friends with some Kenyans, and I finally made a plan to visit one of them in Kenya. During that trip, I thought it'd be fun to ask people details that they would want in a murder mystery and then write one. Anyway, Elizabeth, yeah. if there was, if, if you had to kill someone and get away with it, how would you do it? I would not even kill someone. You wouldn't? <laughs> well, Please, I don't want to kill anybody. Of course you don't want to kill anybody. <laughs> but, but if you had to, how would you get away with it? Oh my goodness. I would not be happy with myself. <laughs> I would be sobbing. I would be crying. Elizabeth wasn't any help. Oh my goodness. Okay, oh I'm going to go bury this out in the back. <laughs> I buried the sourdough starter in the snow. It would kind of keep time when I was gone. Like Edgar Allan Poe burying a body deep in the frozen winter. I also have friends in the UK and in Belgium. So I thought I'd make it a global murder mystery trip. What should I call this thing? Should I call it making a murder? Murder mystery? <laughs> um, world kills? I don't know. Matthew in the future. Please come up with a good murder mystery title. Thank hmm. you. Okay. How about ARF? A global murder mystery. It'll make sense later. My bread dough was buried. It was time to go. My girlfriend dropped me off at the Megabus in Minneapolis. Gotta go. Here's the bus with Rochelle. Hi. My coworker didn't give me any details for the murder mystery, so my girlfriend Rochelle would be the first. Anything you would want in a murder mystery? I want an animal to be involved somehow. Like, maybe in the end, like, you figure out the dog did it. <laughs> like, and not just accidentally, like, on purpose. Ooh, malicious dog. <laughs> That sounds good. A dog did it? <clears throat> sounds far-fetched. No pun intended. So, I left Rochelle and headed to Chicago. I started writing the story. First detail, the dog had to be involved. Chapter 1. Heidi Jones saw the dogs before she saw Dougie, partly because he blended in with them. The same bounding energy, like a conga line slipping off its axle. One step forward, to the left, stop, jolt. Dougie was live-streaming the walk, its quotidian rhythms lapping upon the shore of relatability. Behind the cloud of bushy-tailed energy, another man followed. He was looking at his phone as well, but on the other side of another broadcast. Pidey saw all this perched on a stool with an old friend, Bridget Adams, university friends. They had just stumbled into each other while Bridget was getting her second cup of coffee. It was Pidey's first, but much needed one. She had had a long night, a series of long nights. Hard alcohol, funny name, didn't seem that hard to Pidey. In the years since their last meeting, Bridget had become a medical tech engineer specializing in blood and plasma. Seeing Dougie and the crew bubbling up the sidewalk, Bridget pointed him out to Piety. There he is, my boyfriend Dougie. Piety asked, is he a dog walker? Bridget laughed and explained, it's weird. My company actually has a company dog walker. Isn't that crazy? Like, if you live in the city, he'll stop by and walk your dogs. But every time he comes, Dougie ends up going with them and walking the dogs. Piety struggled to envision such a life. It sounded annoying, yet aspirant. Piety ran her hand through her matted hair, a crude ventilation. Nervous of offending Bridget, of criticizing her life, she attempted a general comment. People love dogs now. They get them out of the house, I suppose. I could use a dog. But more to keep me in. Ha! Bridget looked confused. Piety cringed. Then, in that confusing way we all do, she doubled down, thinking it would dilute the depressing admission. Sorry, weird line. What I mean is, I've been going out too much. But honestly, 
I drink just as much as when I stay home. But the gaff didn't push Bridget away. In fact, hearing this, Bridget twinkled open, a noticeable change in focus. I know what you need. Bridget dipped a napkin in her ice water, folded it, and placed it on Piety's temples. As Bridget drifted into her personal bubble, Piety reflexively pulled back, but the energy to protect such space wasn't really there, and there wasn't much worth protecting. Besides, it felt nice. As the napkin cooled her tense skin, Piety felt her brain exhale a bit. She felt like stretching. Thanks, I didn't know I needed that, she said. Bridget responded, it's nice to be needed. You know what? You need something tart. I'll be right back. There's a store next to here that has some drinking vinegar. And before Piety could say no, Bridget got up and left. Now, Rochelle told me that a dog should have committed the murders. I laughed. It was kind of a funny idea. But three weeks later, I was in Nairobi. I'm in Nairobi. And today I finished my book, so I needed to get a new one. And I, There's a lot of people on the street who sell books. They have them all kind of laid out there. Probably. Most of the books are self-help. Kenya is a rising country. There's kind of an American dream ethos going on. But I didn't need that because I'm kind of post-American dream. But I did find a book that's a bit serendipitous. It's Edgar Allan Poe. The Murders in the Rue Morgue. It's a bit serendipitous because it's credited as really laying out the template for the murder mystery. But the modern murder mystery isn't about the actual murders. It's about a system of thought. You'll see this if you read Sherlock Holmes. Or It's about a brain being able to understand the entire world. Poe wrote his short story in 1841, same year the blueprint was invented. Actually, technically the next year, but it was being worked on during that. These ideas of being able to understand and control the world, they're part of our modernity. Rochelle said that in our murder mystery, a dog should have done it. Who was the murderer in Poe's story? And who did it? A gorilla. It was actually an orangutan, but the story was really good. He pulled it off. So, Rochelle, sorry for laughing at your dog idea. If I were as good of a writer as Poe, maybe I could have pulled it off. But in this one, it's not going to be a dog. But a dog will be involved. Anyway, let's go back to the story. Chapter 1 continued. A moment later, Dougie came tumbling in. The dog walker, who wasn't walking any dogs, waited outside. Dougie, still addressing his online audience, wrapped up his live stream. Okay, peace out from Dougie Tees. It's a beautiful day. Hit up my shop, DougieTees.com. I have an offer code, but I can't remember it right now. But probably Dougie10. <laughs> Sorry. Peace. And he ended the stream. Clamoring about with the dogs, Dougie asked for two kombuchas and a pitcher of water to refill the large dog bowl out front. The barista, sympathetic to Dougie's efforts to wrangle the dogs, reached over the counter to help as he percussively tapped his phone on the card reader to pay. Sorry, Dougie, it's not working for some reason. Understanding, Dougie switched and reached into his pocket. But his phone was still in his hand, so he couldn't actually grab whatever money was in there. Piety cut in and grabbed the leashes so Dougie could grab his money. Flustered but smiling, Dougie plopped the money on the counter like he had netted a handful of crabs dredged from the ocean floor. Dougie, said the barista, this is Canadian money. Dougie's bills were American, but the change closely resembling American money, but honoring animals instead of ex-presidents, was Canadian. Dougie, not registering the complaint, responded, I'm heading there. Can't wait to crush a couple bush lights. Not sure which Canadian beer she thought Dougie was thinking of, the barista laughed and moved on. Dougie's positivity was worth the 54 cents he owed. Piety, Dougie, and the dogs exited the shop. The dogs erupted onto the sidewalk like silly string or cheese whiz, curling and sputtering out. Piety, wanting to not be her hungover self for a moment, play-acted that she didn't know who Dougie was and asked the two men, You two dog walkers? No, no, these are my dogs, Dougie answered. I'm a businessman. And you? She asked the actual dog walker. Today I guess I'm a dog watcher. He chuckled and grabbed the kombucha Dougie had offered him. Piety turned back to Dougie. What type of business? You're looking at it. Dougie pulled back his flannel and revealed a t-shirt that said, Doug gone tired. You're, uh, 
piety trailed off. T-shirt man. I run Dougie Tees, a t-shirt company. I sell custom tees. And you're successful? On my way there, Dougie answered, unaffected by the presumptuous question. Okay. And what are you up to now? Piety asked. On my way there. Dougie pointed to a plasma center across the street. Community Plasma Health. Making some extra spending money, you know, loans and business, Dougie explained. Piety tested how far she could go. How in debt are you? Dougie answered without a thought. Don't really know. My girlfriend helps with the financial side of the business. Piety wondered what side of a business wasn't the financial side. She would have asked, but Dougie, seeing a gap in the traffic, charted out a got-to-go, took the leashes from Piety and stepped out into the street. Two cars slowed to a crawl, but no one honked, as if Dougie and his dogs were innocent ducklings. The dog walker waited for a more appropriate moment to cross. A moment later, Bridget tapped Piety on the shoulder and gave her a bottle of cherry apple drinking vinegar. Piety accepted and said, Met your boyfriend? and pointed to Dougie as he handed the dogs off to the dog walker across the street. He looked back, saw Bridget, and exaggeratedly waved while pretending to shout hello or goodbye or whatever it was he was pretending to shout. Bridget waved, and Dougie entered the plasma center. Yeah, Bridget said, watching Dougie disappear. He's like a dog, but not in a bad way. Dogs are nice. Cats are easier, way easier. But dogs need you. That's why we like them. Love them. Piety reflexively quipped, You talking about the dogs or Dougie? Bridget smiled and laughed. So there are some characters, an introduction of sorts. I wrote that part when I was in Kenya. But I didn't have a location yet. That didn't come until I visited England. And I have a midnight flight. takes off at 11... 59, that's what it says. So I have some melodramatic, <laughs> some goth pilot takes off at midnight. Finally landing in. I went to East England, Broadstairs. I stayed with some old friends. Um, murder mystery time. No updates, didn't work on it in England. Okay, this is Dora, my song, ready? Okay, Dora, can you give it some drums? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> They had had a couple of kids since the last time I visited. Yeah, and a bit more. And stop. Dora is basically hitting a drum machine. Thanks, Dora. It has a grid. It has a grid that makes sense of Dora's random hits, or seemingly random. And now, Dora, we need some synths. Go, synths. <laughs> you must feel pretty proud of yourself, Dora. <laughs> At this point, a substantial part of the outline had already been made, so I just wanted a location from Ali and Layla. I was thinking about having my characters being spirited away to some fancy setting, you know, classic murder mystery setup. Mm. Like, like any good foraging, like a, foraging, foraging outing, that'd be quite good. Poison mushrooms. <laughs> I was a bit overhandedly prompting them to get like a wealthy ass, you know, fancy setting. But Ali and Layla, they work in education. They're incredibly down to earth people. Like hiking somewhere where you go hiking. It's so cute. <laughs> you two are both so like just like into nature and shit. You can't get in the mind of like the egregiously wealthy, you know, rent out. Your idea was look for plants and your idea was hike around plants. Oh, so like if we're talking like proper rich people stuff, maybe like hunting giraffes? Anyway. Okay. That's so my where would a rich blood plasma company go on a retreat? Remember, the company, Community Plasma Health, is very a, a, a conglomerate of blood, I guess. Or, I know, why don't they go to Canada on, like, a wine-tasting trip around BC? Oh, lovely. That's, yeah. that's classy. That is classy. Well, we could have them go to um, Vancouver Island. <coughs> yeah. Or an island nice. outside of Vancouver for the real rich people. Like oh, so good, cool, private island. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, everyone... Yeah, that works. That'd be good. Vancouver Island. Island Private Island is a good call, isn't it? Because it's like, that's classy. That is classy. (laughs) You are the first.
a dolly, ripping a solo. Layla and I playing the rest. We're covering a song by another friend. It was a, a blast. Wholesome might be the word. Not very murder mystery-ish. But that's okay. Thanks, Allie and Layla. We now have our location. Vancouver Island. Or, kind of. Chapter 2. Vancouver? Piety Semi yelled into her phone, which was wedged into a cabinet so she could talk as she stirred pasta, which she should have stirred five minutes ago. Vancouver Island, Bridget corrected Piety. My boss says it's an island off of Vancouver Island, she continued. Why was Piety the flustered one? Bridget was an engineer, a manager of a team, while all Piety was responsible for was stirring noodles, which were now clumped together. Piety poked at it with a fork. Her ego, which went defensive, thought, maybe corporate life is bullshit. All those pointless emails and scheduling, it can't be that hard. Just a rich country filling time with pointless. Bridget cut off her thought. The retreat, or whatever we're calling it, is on an island off of Vancouver Island, I think. Bridget's company, Community Plasma Health, was flying management out to British Columbia for their yearly retreat, and Bridget was inviting piety. Isn't Dougie your plus one? Dougie's basically CPH's mascot. He's got his own invite. You're my date, explained Bridget. Plasma was at the center of Bridget's life. It was her work, what little of a social life she had. And she met Dougie there while he was given Plasma. In fact, one of Dougie's first t-shirts he made was for her. A I Heart New York style shirt, but instead it said I Heart Hearts. Hearts meaning plasma, apparently. Piety gave one final jab at the fused pasta. The trip sounded like fun, and Piety had an open calendar and figured the weekend away would have an open bar. So she said yes. Two weeks later, Piety took the Empire Builder out to Seattle, then a bus up to BC. She found herself at one of Vancouver's ferry docks. She stood there, teetering to one side like an old coat rack, a six-pack of tall boys acting like a wet raincoat pulling her off center. Watching a fairy glacially back itself in, she wrenched a Labatt's tall boy from its plastic necklace and drank it as quickly as you tastefully can, hoping to finish it before the fairy boarded. She was about to get on when she heard a voice careen down from above like a zipline. Piety Jones. She clenched the can, crinkling its aluminum body, while she flinched and looked up at a yacht so incomprehensibly lavish it achieved a sort of invisibility. Not literally, of course, more like how you don't even see the $50 bottle of olive oil at the grocery store. But then the bottle of olive oil called out to her again. Piety Jones. It was Bridget's boss, Tariq Caret. Against the shipped railing, he looked like he was presenting an Oscar, and against her reflex to dismiss his wealth, she felt honored just to have been nominated. Okay, so we have a location. We have some characters. Just getting on a fancy boat. Sounds murder mystery. We have some dogs in the store. Who let the dogs out? Love that song. That was recorded on my phone in Nairobi at a popular expat bar. I had previously spent a couple weeks in rural Kenya with my friend and his family. Now I was seeing another side of Kenya. The side where outsiders come in and make a lot of money. Sounds a bit like colonialism. I heard people say things like, don't trust the Tanzanians. I heard one say he pretended not to know Swahili so he'd have an advantage while negotiating business in English. It felt a little bit like the past. Agatha Christie set many of her books for vacation settings in colonized lands. They portray foreigners refusing to adapt to the local way of life, even the weather. Their social circles devouring themselves under the weight of their own excess, infidelity, backstabbing, and of course, eventually, death. Did I see this in Nairobi among the expats? Well, an updated version, perhaps. The neo-colonizers weren't just white now, but Indian, Middle Eastern, etc. And I feel ungrateful, a bit bratty, denouncing the expats who welcomed me, calling them neo-colonialists. Because it's not that simple. Kenya wants and needs outside business, even though they want and need it because of the problems caused by outside business. And these people that I denounce as neo-colonists, 
they're just following the orders that we have given them. They're just there, like the characters in Agatha Christie's books, playing a part. And the part my host was playing was ebullient, joyous, wild party man. That's my host. He even knew Prince was from Minnesota, where I'm from. We'll call him Ahmed. Staying with him was a bit of cultural whiplash. I went from rural Kenya, where you had to collect your own water for basic plumbing, to a place that had five bathrooms. He was great. He took me out. He bought me dinner, drinks, wonderful host. He also was a wonderful character, very suave, businessman lets loose type character. You're, you're um, I think at work, you probably are a very different person than the person I've... Absolutely. Maybe not very, but like... No, I am, I am. I'm more, uh, I would say, more calm, reserved. I'm, I'm very professional, I would say, yeah. when it comes to work. And, and outside that. of work, you can say some crazy things. So I, you know... Want me to give some examples? No, <laughs> you could skip that, but I mean, <laughs> out of work, I mean, even yourself, I mean, as long as you're not being... Uh, malicious or something or, 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 or mean, but I mean, yeah, a joke, you know, especially with people I feel comfortable with, people I find that, okay. Because you I say some be... stuff that we wouldn't say in America. America, <laughs> we're racist, but we don't say racist stuff. <laughs> I'll, I'll just well, say you wouldn't know better. <laughs> in America, we pretend race doesn't exist and that our work is our life. In Ahmed's culture, you talk about race, sometimes offensively, and you know that work is just part of your life. Which version of you do you think is, is more you? When you're at work, when you're um, being more professional, or when you're cutting loose, um, saying the things that we won't repeat in this interview? Well, probably I think after work is the person who I am. And at work, it's a person that I should be. So I try to be as best I could, you know. Ahmed. He's, he was a character. I thought I'd base the boss character after him. Maybe even the evil boss character, because he sounds sometimes a little evil bossy. Well, I, you know, I could put it simply, you cannot make everyone happy all the time. And I think he leans into it. One of his social media profile pictures is of the bad guy from Better Call Saul. But he denies that he likes these murderous but suave bad guys. I have my doubts. I feel like those characters are a lot like you. And you used an image of them as a profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really identify or I really want to associate myself or be like them. But I mean, it's just, just it's all done in the sense of laugh, for but example. You don't think that you're there yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't tell you if I am, but just saying. <laughs> I had planned to make his character kind of evil, but I just couldn't do it. I just had him be just kind of a normal, happy boss. Maybe this was subconscious because that was my experience with Ahmed. Maybe I just didn't want to lean into the sadistic nature of an evil person. There is some sadism coming up in this story, but I didn't have it be Ahmed. Sorry for not making you evil. Let's continue our story. Priority Jones, our outsider, just got on a big fancy boat with a bunch of strangers for a wild weekend. Chapter 3 Piety Jones On top of the yacht, Bridget's boss, Tariq Corette, yodeled down to Piety. It was a mix between a mountaineer solidly surveying from the untouched crest and a dad calling down from some bleachers. Piety Jones! The economic and elevation differential muddled her normal confidence as she found herself wanting to say the right thing. Why did she want to impress him? He was the archetype of a rich asshole, flying out his staff for a lavish weekend while his company literally sucks the blood out of the working class. Up here, Miss Jones, we're leaving, he called. It certainly was up. She followed a ramp to some stairs and then an elevator. As she ascended, she bristled to the luxury. So annoying when the 1% takes social stratification literally. She exited at the top and entered a narrow hallway. The yacht must be shuttling people to the island, Piety guessed, as she winded about, trying to find her way to the main deck. The boat slightly rocked as the engines pushed off. Piety leaned against the wall. 
A member of the staff squeezed by. So how long does it take to get to the island? She asked. The woman, balancing a squadron of champagne flutes, gyroscopically countering the boat's acceleration, was confused by the question. Piety reached slowly towards one of the flutes, as if to ask for one. The waiter lowered the tray. She took one and asked again, How long till we get to the island? The staff twisted past and pushed open the door at the end of the hallway, revealing a deep, verdant basin where she expected a main deck of a yacht to be. The white staff then dramatically revealed, This is the island. Moss, vines, even small critters scuttled about. Piety wasn't sure what it reminded her of. The Garden of Eden? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon? Willy Wonka's factory? Oprah's solarium? Didn't matter. Some rich people play golf. Others play God. Piety entered the garden. Tariq, Bridget's boss, was directing his guests. He greeted multiple people at once, helped someone with their bags, chatted up an old or new friend she couldn't tell. He was jovial with everyone. He was a great host. He answered questions before the asker was done asking. What's the Wi-Fi password? You don't need the internet here. We have tequila, baklava, barbecue. See a mango you like? Pluck it off the tree. But the guest didn't want a mango. Treek saw the panic in their eyes. But if you want the internet, the password is Dr. Ausap. The guest looked down to plug in the magic word into their device. Piety stepped forward and asked, Who's Dr. Oswap? Tariq answered, No one. It's password backwards. Isn't it dangerous to have easy-to-guess passwords? Won't people hack in or something? Miss Jones, the reason I wanted to make a lot of money in the first place was so that I wouldn't have to worry about it. Piety jumped ahead to what she was really thinking. How'd you know my name? Tariq was slow to answer, visibly pleased with the power he had to withhold. I like to keep busy, my affairs, who's coming. I like to plan to make sure everyone's happy. The only time I like to sit and relax is when I sleep. Heidi took a long, annoyed sip of champagne. Okay. So you got my name from a manifest or something. But how did you know it was me? The same way you knew who I was. Reputation. Heidi instinctively lowered her drink. Here I am at my friend's Josiah's house in Kenya. We both work at a group home back in Minnesota. He sends his money back here to build and manage properties. I just saw a little, I think it's a female golden, golden-winged sunbird. He came over and got some of the bananas. It definitely wasn't a golden-winged sunbird, but it was a sunbird. The other birds in his backyard were easier to identify. They were chickens. What are you doing right now? I'm um, sweeping my room. This is Travis, Josiah's grandson. Will we go to the river? When? um, Maybe today, maybe soon, when Edgar gets back. The river is actually a spring. It's a tube that sticks out the side of a hill. There hasn't been much rain, so Josiah and everyone, really, has to collect water here to fill the water tanks that normally get filled with rainwater. Hey, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What type of murder mystery would you want if you had to do a murder mystery? Uh, how, how would they get killed? Uh, or how about a character? What type of character? A rich person. A rich person, okay. <laughs> but a rich person could be killed easily. Because they have money? Yeah. That's right. Do you think I'm a rich person? Hmm? Do you think I'm a rich person? You are just a normal person to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm a normal person. But I do have. A Nobody bit. is rich. Nobody? Yeah. Only God is rich. <laughs> That's a good point. Only God is rich. That's true. We all just live here on earth for a bit. Nothing is ours, we just use things take things. We only have them for a short amount of time and then we let go of them in death. Only God is rich. But unfortunately, people can be poor. 
but not in our murder mystery. In our murder mystery, the rich are rich. Very rich. Chapter 4 The parts of the floating island that didn't look like the Illuminati's version of the Rainforest Cafe used hardwood from the actual rainforest to create a staggeringly beautiful interior, equipped with chic grow lights to keep the plants alive. The glasses at the bar had to be hand-washed, perhaps were handmade, as were the uniforms of the staff. How odd how the rich and the poor overlap, hand-washed clothing being an indicator of poverty or wealth, depending on your country code. Next to all this, the guests, mostly middle-class employees of Tariq's company, looked like museum guests, gawking at the splendor. They were ready to let loose. In the chaos of the arrivals, Piety finally met up with Bridget and Dougie. Dougie held a duffel bag in one hand and leashes, acting more like reins, in the other. Piety noticed the addition of a new dog, a Samoyed puppy, which meant he now had five dogs. Dougie saw Piety and paused as he tried to place her face in his mind. Piety scooped up and cuddled the snowball of a dog, then addressed Dougie. We met before at the coffee shop. Bridget and I are old friends. I'm her plus one. She handed the lumpy dog back to Dougie. I love this dog, Dougie shouted. The dog answered with a bark. Dougie joked, Isn't it funny that we're the smartest animal that ever lived, but we teach dogs English instead of us learning dog? I know dog, Piety said. Really? Dougie responded. Arf, arf, Piety said, to which Bridget cut in. Watch your mouth. They all laughed. Dougie then started a tour of the floating island even though he'd only been there for 30 minutes. But his jokes were as corny as any eager tour guide. When he saw a palm tree, he joked, if it's like palm, do you call the leaf's fingers? Which, of course, became a t-shirt idea. He made some joke about the yacht being a dessert island instead of desert island on account of a buffet of sweets. In general, Dougie didn't know much about the place, but he did know almost all the people. He put the extra an extrovert. Dougie saw the dog walker from across the room and he yelled, who's walking? And the dog walker responded by yelling, who? The dog walker was embarrassed by the public display of their inside joke, but still smiled ear to ear. Some staff passed by and Dougie gave them a pound and shook hands like after a little league game. Good game, good game, good game. A moment later, a caterer pushed past with a cart full of kitchen prep plastic containers with cling wrap obscuring the ingredients. Inspired as the man passed, Dougie reached into his duffel bag and tapped the man on the shoulder. Bro, take this. The caterer, who was actually the main cook, rolled open the shirt and laughed. He held it up. It said, Cookie, you're a cook, get it? Before the cook could give the shirt back, Dougie had continued on to his next instant friendship victim. By the time Dougie got to Bridget's boss, Tariq, He was already in stitches. Dougie had made a t-shirt just for him. It was a picture of the bad guy from Better Call Saul, sinisterly smiling. The boss didn't even have to say thank you. He was laughing too much. Everyone seemed to already know Dougie. He was kind of a celebrity. Or more, like everyone else was a celebrity, and Dougie was a superfan. Bridget held Dougie's hand and gave him the names and titles of people as they passed by. That's Aaron from HR. That's so-and-so. Like a politician's body man, so he could introduce himself. But there was one person he didn't need an introduction to. My buddy Josiah lives in Kisi, Kenya. One way to get out there from Nairobi is to take a van, a matatu. It's how most people get around. Now, the music may make it sound like this was like a pleasant journey, and it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but it, it wasn't comfortable. The driver, he, had, he wouldn't wear his seatbelt, and the beep, beep, beep of the seatbelt thing literally went for the seven hours during the ride. I was surprised to later learn that this was actually an improvement, and 10 years ago, Matatus used to be have more people stuffed into them. In Murder Mysteries, when there's transportation involved, it's usually fancy. Like a luxury train in Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Fancy boat with death on the Nile. If I were more ambitious, 
I'd tried to correct for this wealth bias in murder mysteries by writing death in a matatu. But I think that's beyond me. Kesey itself was the opposite of the matatu. We had some room. All right, I'm going to go into the chicken coop, mm-hmm. coop and find those chickens. Josiah had 18 chickens out back. This mango isn't bad. What? This mango is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I interviewed Josiah's son, Edgar. What would be a, if there was a murder mystery set in Kisi, mm. what would it be? A man going to his side chick's place <laughs> and getting married over there. Okay. So a... Mm, or maybe extramarital. Yeah, revenge, someone's like, why are you with my girl? Yeah, in my own house. Can you tell me again what you call a one-night stand? Chips funga. Chips funga. Chips as in French fries, chips. Chips funga is the open um, roadside, open kiosk, the way they cook the chips. Oh, like what we got yesterday? So... Like roadside french fries, stopping off to get a little treat. (laughs) Makes sound weird that way. Edgar wants an extramarital affair. He thinks that would be good. Let's put it in. Why not? But first. All right, I'm going to go into the chicken coop. Coop. I went in to get some eggs. Whoa. About four feet off the ground. Did you bounce on this? Yeah. But it was kind of nerve-wracking. Oh, I see four. Let's get back to the story. Piety Jones is meeting the the cast of characters. Dougie knows everyone. Chapter 5 One person Dougie didn't need an introduction to was Sarah Arras. Everyone loved Dougie, but Sarah was in love with Dougie. She didn't know why. It was kind of like the impulse to watch a plane overhead crisscross paths with another. The ethereal X in the sky. Something deep in you that clicks. Sarah was the manager of the plasma clinic Dougie went to. She didn't dare flirt overtly in that boisterous sort of way. That way, some people lean on plausible deniability, acting like, I'm just a loud, fun person. I'm not flirting. No. She flirted in the inescapably transparent sort of way. The way someone who's not used to being in love becomes see-through and singular. Bridget would have been jealous of Sarah's affections, but she was pretty sure Dougie didn't have the ability to cheat, or at least hide it anyway. Piety made eyes with Bridget as she handed her a mojito she had acquired from one of the magical waiters drifting by. Bridget accepted and commented, Dougie loves everyone and everyone loves Dougie, but there's nothing going on. Okay, Piety offered. We all love Dougie, but Dougie needs me, and that's real love. Priety was struck by her sincerity, kind of annoyed, really. Sincerity and confidence aren't too far apart. Both require a certainty of feeling. Priety didn't want that certainty, perhaps scared of what it might be. She reflexively poked fun at their girls talking about boys' conversation and joked, We're failing the Bechdel test. Not looking at Piety, Bridget answered, The only test I've ever failed. Piety thought she was serious, but then Bridget broke the tension with a laugh. Her eyes pointed back across the room to Dougie, who had just given Sarah a t-shirt that said, Blood Maniac. Sarah melted, as if Dougie had just proposed. Piety and Bridget returned to normal conversation. But Piety wasn't so sure there wasn't something going on between Dougie and Sarah. Sure, Dougie wasn't capable of hiding an affair per se, but he might be able to forget about one. Or not realize that he was having one. By the evening meal, Piety relaxed into her elevated, though temporary, status as the member of the 1%. Because, for the time being, she couldn't reverse the immoral flow of capital and money towards the boss's offshore account, so why not enjoy these shores, so to speak? It certainly wasn't hard to enjoy them. The evening meal was an unrestrained high-brow, low-brow mix. The jungle-like theme of the floating island allowed for a primordial indulgence. Yet the execution of the fine dining lofted its guests above the unrefined proletariat. 
Perhaps it was the imperceptible rocking of the boat, lulling the diners into a stupor. But it seemed that even the simplest things, like soft butter magically holding its shape on fresh bread, tiny mountain ranges of crystallized salt embedded in the skin of a roasted songbird, they all radiated with purpose, and the purpose was guiltless consumption, a hedonic self-justification. Besides, the food was only getting colder. At the table was the cast of characters from Bridget's life. Tariq the boss, Dougie the boyfriend, Sarah the whatever, and Piety the observer. A couple other work acquaintances filled out the roster. There were multiple hierarchies present, professional, economic, and social ones. But Dougie's presence dissolved the tension and power differentials, like the champagne bubbles lifting up and through the flutes, inaudibly pipping themselves out of existence. It was like the opposite of Shark Tank. The CEOs at the table peppered Dougie with questions and praise for his objectively mediocre business idea of selling t-shirts online. But they loved him. One commented, So you're growing, not bad. Dougie demurred, No, 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 not yet. I'm pre-revenue. The dinner guest didn't believe him and brought up Dougie's latest purchase, the Samoyed puppy. A new puppy of that breed goes for like, I don't know, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars you're clearly not insolvent. Dougie batted back the comment. I don't even know what insolvent means. The businessman took it as bravado. Everyone who knew Dougie took it literally. After the main course, Dougie and Tariq were falling over each other in rapturous laughter. It was all inaudible giggles and half sentences. But Piety didn't make out one thing. The boss said, consider us even. Piety not knowing she was even listening, snapped up from her digestive torpor and leaned over to Bridget. She asked her what they would even be even about. Bridget said Tariq was Dougie's main lender. How much did he borrow? Piety asked. A lot, she answered. Did boss man just forgive the loan? Bridget shrugged, not knowing, then offered as a way of explaining. I don't really know about his numbers. But he said you helped him with his finances. I helped him set things up, not ongoing. Piety drained a glass of wine, which ended the conversation. She slung it down to the table, striking the surface much harder than expected. It didn't break, but it shocked her. Why are wine bottles so thick and wine glasses so thin? She wondered. Piety felt odd. Maybe it was the food. Probably it was the booze. But watching a possibly massive amount of debt disappear added to Piety's feeling of unreality the unreality that comes with wealth. She stood up and toasted, to blood and friends and doggy teas. Everyone rose their glasses. Sarah Arras cut in, correcting piety. Dougie teas. It's Dougie teas. Piety, embarrassed, looked at Dougie, regained herself, and added, Dougie, you love dogs. Why not doggy teas? Dougie, himself now a bit buzzed, answered, I love dogs, but I regret nothing, nothing ever. Arf, arf. To which the table echoed, arf, arf. Dougie did not regret anything. At least not yet. Piety Jones drinks a lot in this story, and it's because I used to drink a lot. And I think I wanted to have a character to do the thing that I can't do anymore. Just drink and drink and drink. I don't even want to drink that much anymore, but it's, I don't know, it's part of my psyche. In Kenya, I didn't drink very much, but I did smoke weed, though. I'm not a fan of weed, but I had the opportunity, and it seemed like it'd be a worthwhile experience. I'd made friends with this neighborhood guy, and after a few days, he asked me if I wanted to smoke weed. Weed is illegal in Kenya, so I was a bit trepidatious, but we were just going to another friend's house, so I figured, you know, we weren't going to buy drugs, so it'd be fine. Off the main road, we walked through someone's yard, past one small house, where we found another slightly diminished one. Maybe not diminished, diminutive. It was a hut with a corrugated iron roof. We passed a crop of maize and mouse birds fluttered about impatiently waiting for the kernels to ripen. There was this guy above us, like 40 feet in the air, collecting guava. He gave us one. Turns out I don't like guava. My friend and I then entered the small single room house with a dirt floor. It had a curtain dividing it into two rooms. A young man parted the curtain and distractedly welcomed us. He was, I would later be told, hungover from a funeral he had attended the night before. 
My friend had me give him 100 shillings for two joints. I guess I was buying drugs. My friend and this guy were friendly. I couldn't really tell if they were actually friends. It reminded me of high school, but not in a nostalgic way, in a drug wars way. The weird pseudo-friendship someone has with a low-level drug dealer. The weird Russian roulette feeling, when you know there's a chance that you'll get busted for doing this thing, but you kind of do it anyway. It's almost like you can picture a parallel universe where you get arrested, but you just don't happen to be in that one, so you go ahead with it. We listened to reggae on a smartphone and smoked the joints. Over the week, we did this twice, and the second time, I got high, very high. My body just feels like one giant knuckle that needs to be cracked. (laughs) But also, my mind was freaking out. The internal monologue kind of going crazy. I had this one thought. When you get high, when you get too high, it was like, okay, once I get home, get in my bed, everything will be fine. But then I realized just how far my actual bed was from me. Okay, I just need to get home. But home is pretty far away. <laughs> it's just high house where my passport is and some money. I'm talking a bit quiet. I think my brain was melting. I'll do some voiceover. Take a motorbike to downtown Kesey. Find one of those vans. Drive to Nairobi. Take an Uber to the airport. Buy the next flight out to Minnesota. Probably have a layover in France. Get to Minnesota. Take the train to 35th Street. Oh, wait, but I think my keys are actually at Rochelle's house. Shit. <laughs> so now I have to go back. Take the bus all the way to Rochelle's. Take a bus to St. Paul. Go to Rochelle's house. See her. Probably spend the night because it will be nice to see her. Next day, take the bus back. Wait. No, my bike's at Rochelle's. I forgot that. I'll get on my bike and I'll bike home. Bike home to Minneapolis. Walk up, unlock my door. Open the door, go upstairs, lay in my bed. <laughs> That's... <laughs> oh. Now I'm actually thinking about that bit. It's like, man, I am far from home. But I'm old enough to not panic, which is basically what traveling is, even if you're not high. It's basically what life is. If, if you, There's a lot of things that can melt your brain. You just have to let go of the terror. And this is in no way an absolution of responsibility for taking care of each other, but we don't need to hold the terror. Yeah, let go of it. Life can be painful, discomfort is real, but terror is a story attached to that pain. You know, let go, please, I'm begging you. Am I talking to myself? Oh my God. Let's return to the story. It's the fancy dinner on the floating island. Chapter 6, After Dinner It was a work retreat, at least a small part of it was, and the biggest part of that small part was a presentation involving Bridget. During dessert, Bridget marched up to the stage, and still within the George of the Jungle-looking setting of the floating island, she looked a bit out of place as she led a sort of show-and-tell presentation of the products that CHP would be implementing the next year. As the employees and their guests ate miniature pavlovas, Bridget ran through a PowerPoint presentation that was a bit, well, PowerPointy. It focused on a new plasmapheresis machine that Bridget and her team had built. Plasmapheresis is a process of drawing blood out of a body, separating the plasma from other elements, and returning it back to the body. Bridget had taken the standard machine and expanded its capabilities. The machine now could be used for plasma extraction, blood transfusions, bone marrow transplants, and other intravenous therapies. Basically, if fluids were involved, it could probably do it. Bridget was calling it a panphoresis. She wasn't as good at naming things as she was at inventing them. The presentation built up to a big moment. The panphoresis was wheeled out and then, pause for applause, or just pause. The big moment didn't really come. The machine just stood there, sat there. It looked like a small vending machine, but with clear disposable tubes looped along the exposed crevices of its smooth surface. It looked kind of like an office chair with a fancy microwave on the seat. Not too impressive. Bridget froze. She was good at executing expectations, but a good presentation relies on the unexpected, the unexpectations. But then, our hero to the rescue, 
Dougie whipped out his phone and started live streaming. He called out to the room, Y'all want to be famous? We're live, y'all. He picked up his 2000-era duffel bag and marched up to the stage, live streaming along the way, the room slowly coming to life. He addressed the crowd and his online followers simultaneously. Dougie Tees has a special announcement tonight. He pulled out a t-shirt that said, BF to Blood Lady, and held it up for all to see as he kissed Bridget on the cheek. The room clapped. Dougie then added, I'm Dougie and I'm a plasma donor, and as someone on the other side of the needle, I love that it'll be faster and safer for me when I next give plasma, and I can't wait to try this out. But y'all have all these rules about not being drunk when donating, so we'll have to put that off till I get sober, because tonight we're going to get wasted. He ended the live stream, and the room erupted with cheers, and on cue, the wait staff started playing LMFAO's Party Rockers and handing out shots. Dougie ran by Sarah Arras as the song yelled, We Just Wanna See You Shake That, and he pulled her up out of her seat to join the chaotic pool of dancers. More jumping than dancing, really. They partied like no tomorrow. But for one of them, there wasn't. The next morning, Dougie was found dead. This song is not Party Rockers, by the way. It's Fireboy DML's song, Peru. It was playing on Josiah's TV on my last day in Kisi. Fireboy DML's lyrics are about hustling and making money, going to Johannesburg, San Francisco, Miami. Fireboy DML is Nigerian, but it seems that the hustle is Pan-African. The beat I'm playing right now started in West Africa. I learned it because my culture often looks backwards. That's why I learned it. But Kenya is looking forward to a wealthier future. Murder mysteries are often about wealth, the dark side of wealth. When you go from being able to feed your family to making money off of people having to feed their families. It's about how you get corrupted, isolated with wealth often. And as someone on the other side of inequality, the rich side, I can't help but applaud their growth, Kenya's growth, but with trepidation. Because America was hungry once, and we filled our bellies. But we're still starving. Next up, part two of ARF, a global murder mystery, Who Killed Dougie?